Troilus and Cressida is famously one of Shakespeare's problem plays, but my friend Gemma Levy, who has successfully directed other problematic Shakespeare plays, has cracked what I think is the problem of Troilus and Cressida. Am I overstating that, Gemma? Um, I would like to think that I have cracked it. I don't know if everybody would agree with me, but I do know that the production that I just worked on at the Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern was very successful with audiences, which I think is a major victory in the history of Troilus and Cressida. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener co-artistic director of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 18th year, number 898, Troilus and Cressida. I talked to director Gemma Levy almost exactly a year ago about her Cincinnati Shakespeare Company production of Taming of the Shrew. And I'm thrilled to talk to her now about her production of Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida that she directed last fall of 2023 at Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern. I've worked on Troilus and Cressida twice and still only feel I have the barest understanding of this really complicated play. So I'm very grateful to Gemma for letting me pick her brain about it and for letting you listen. Here's my theory of of the play. I've, I've played... I played Pandarus, the pervy Pandarus, uh, uh, for the the show must go online during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, and I similarly d- directed a stay a classroom version that uh, in for third year MFA acting students that never got to see a full production because of the pandemic. Right. So my theory about um, uh, Troilus and Cressida is that it is it's a problem play in the sense that it's not a comedy. It's not a history. It's not a tragedy. It's not a romance. It's a a category we don't give to Shakespeare that much, which I call satire. Am I close to something there? I think so. I think one of the challenges is that plot-wise, nobody really knows what to do with it. um, And that it becomes this sort of, it's funny, but it doesn't have a funny ending. And there's a lot of history stuffed into it. If you don't know the history, if you don't know the inside jokes of the Trojan War, you're a little bit at sea. Um, If you don't know the characters from the Trojan War, you are a little bit at sea. Um, And it feels like it it ends certainly as a tragedy with a whole, sorry about the... (laughs) about spoiling the whole thing, but uh, it does end with quite a bit of death. Mm -hmm. Um, There is quite a bit of death throughout, but it also has some of the most ridiculous characters that Shakespeare wrote. Um, And it has a a romance that doesn't really go anywhere. So it has this sort of plot line that is left hanging in the middle. Um, So it just feels, I would almost call it I don't know if I want to say a pastiche, but I would almost call it something. It feels very filmic to me, which is true of a couple of other Shakespeare plays. You could, you could, I think, categorize it with Pericles in that way, mm-hmm. um, but that it seems to jump around a lot, not only in terms of location, but also in terms of genre and in terms of plot. 
Um, yeah. And so I think that that's where people get super stuck with it. And I think that calling it a satire allows is maybe a good way of thinking about finding a through line between all of those really disparate scenes in it. Yeah. And you use the word pastiche, which also feels right. It feels mm -hmm. a little bit like not, if, if not a satire, then a little bit of a parody yes. of, of classical Greek tragedy, Certainly. which I'm not aware about how much Shakespeare would have been aware of classical Greek dramaturgy mm -hmm. um, or, or, or or production elements, but it feels it, it almost feels like it's Shakespeare's version of an Avengers movie. <laughs> you know, he's making fun of all these famous heroes that we've heard out of legend, but he's humanizing them and 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 grounding them in both psychologically interesting ways and in funny ways to think yeah. of these great heroes as being fallibly human. Yes, I think that's true. I would actually almost, instead of comparing it to Marvel, where I think we still really clearly identify those people, those characters as superheroes, mm. they, even though they have these foibles, they're still superheroes. Right. I would almost say it's a better comparison with The Boys. I don't know if you know that show, um, which basically takes the super the super out of the superheroes and really turns them into something else. Or I would also compare that to sort of Norse mythology where you start, or even Greek mythology, where you start to see these characters who are gods, but they behave really atrociously and they really represent the ways in which humans are kind right. of with each other and ridiculous and and he really does that with the heroes of of the trojan war and both i on both sides i think mm -hmm. um, and enjoys that so much and i think that people get trapped in the idea of oh no you know hector and achilles and ajax have to be heroes and i think that shakespeare's point in that play is uh no they don't they really no, they don't and no they aren't yeah yeah. yeah, that's that's a yeah. So Shakespeare was writing his Percy Jackson is what he was writing. <laughs> um, um, uh, well, and it's 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 hard enough keeping track of who are the white who's the white rose and who are the red roses in in Shakespeare's War of the Roses play. It's really hard to keep track of who are the Trojans and who are the Greeks and who are we rooting for on either side. Or yeah. and should should we even have a rooting interest on either side? Yeah, and I think that that's for me that's one of the interesting things about Troilus and Cressida is that because it's called Troilus and Cressida, and because we start there, yeah, with this idea of these young lovers who deserve the best and how happy they could be, that you start to feel sort of invested in Troy because of that. Mm -hmm. But then it turns out that that's maybe not fabulous and and maybe there is some there's some questionable things being done by the Trojans and then it turns out that Cressida's dad has already switched sides so that we already have some traitorous behavior there and maybe he was right to switch sides and then she ends up going to the other side and there's that really complicated scene in which we discovered that her protector is also possibly abusing her and that there's this contention between Troilus and him and it becomes super complicated in a way that I think is purposeful that feels like Shakespeare saying 
yeah, not really a good side in this one. You know, none of these people is really behaving wonderfully. I mean, I think that to some extent, Hector is presented as maybe behaving more morally than than other people, but on the other hand, stupidly. I mean, he gets killed because yeah. of his ethics and because he can't seem to comprehend mm. that anybody would behave badly during a war, which just seems dumb, right? Yeah. So I think that there's a sense of that. And I feel like Shakespeare often does that with his war plays. I very much feel like Shakespeare is constantly poking at the idea of war and how like we we keep lifting it up as this ideal, you know, Henry V and, you know, my band of brothers and blah, blah, blah. But in actual fact, it's still war and it's still dumb and a whole bunch of people are going to die for no reason. Um, and that no matter what, no matter how much you think that that you are fighting on the right side, everybody thinks that they're fighting on the right side and in a war. And in fact, there is no right side. It is just a lot of pointless death. And I think that that's sort of fascinating in terms of what he keeps looking at and in terms of where he's living. Right? When, when, I should Maybe I should say when he's living. Um, but when, he's, when Shakespeare is living and writing, there's so much where the war feels like it is, it is everybody fighting against everybody and nobody is the good guys and nobody is the bad guys. And it's just constant churning of dead bodies. And it's looming and it is both looming in the future and endlessly happening right now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and cyclical in that way, right? That yeah. it's just never ending. And that, and how else do you handle that kind of constant awful other than to laugh at it? Hi. This is David Blixt, author of The Master of Verona and president of Sorterly Inc., and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? We'll be performing the complete history of comedy abridged next month at Hillsdale College and the Dogwood Center for the Performing Arts in Michigan on March 21st and 23rd, and the American Theater in Hampton, Virginia on April 12th, and the Hilton Performing Arts Center in Fairfax, Virginia on April 13th, 2024. Check out the touring page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, or our social media pages for venue and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with director Gemma Levy, talking about Shakespeare's complicated problem play, Troilus and Cressida. The complicated nature of the conflict of the subject matter seems to be hinted at by the fact that to, sh to show you what sort of key the play is written in, Shakespeare gives the final speech to the very complicated, pervy, panderous in a way that you go, oh, the fool, the clown is getting the last laugh, the last speech, except he's not really that funny, but kind of he <laughs> is. Was that was that a guidepost for you? So I will make a confession. I cut the last speech. Ooh. Now, I did have um, scholarly approval to do so. <laughs> so I checked in um, with the unbelievably um, smart Dr. Tiffany Stern to um, find out sort of what 
what it would mean to cut that speech and whether it was just undermining the entire play. Um, and her take on it was that, in fact, it seems to have been um, added on, that the epilogue seems to have been almost a framing device that was added on separately from the play. And so there was actually um, a reason to maybe not need it. Um, and so my production actually ended with Troilus um, talking about his dead brother and starting the cycle over again, which to me felt relevant in terms of the cyclical nature of all of this and the fact that Troilus, from all of the things that he just saw, mm. learned absolutely nothing and maybe became worse as mm. a human being. Um, you know, we start with Troilus sort of not really wanting to go to fight because because he feels so sad about Cressida and he's so in love and he can't really go fight. And then by the time we get to the end of the play, he is the most rabid, we have to go continue fighting, let's kill them all, of all of them. And I feel like that nature where he is taking on the responsibilities that Hector has left, you know, that, that are left behind because Hector is dead. Sorry about that. I just ruined that for everybody. Um, <laughs> but that, that felt to me really relevant. Yeah. Whereas I feel like Pandarus, as you pointed out, I think that Pandarus last speech can be incredibly difficult because it's not funny. Right. Um, the references to uh, his, sexually transmitted diseases are no what do we say that no, sti we don't say stds anymore stis we, we don't no it, they're stis now Infection. it's been so long since i've had a sexually transmitted disease Gemma. i don't know what we're calling them now <laughs> but anyway the references to his um health issues shall we say basically. <laughs> his uh, genital dysphoria yes um, are really difficult to find in the text anywhere, including in that last speech. There is a lot of dramaturgical archaeology that needs to happen in order to make that clear. Um, and where his um, his sort of enthusiasm about everybody having sex with everybody is pretty overt throughout the play. Yeah. We never see him have sex with anybody. Or at no. least in my production, we didn't. And it's not textually, we don't see him have. So the references to these, to his own, um, to his own diseases felt to me really difficult to, to get to for a contemporary audience um, and not funny. And it felt to me like we would lose track of that. Um, and so I chose to cut that. There's also, there's reference, there's a couple of um, repeated um, leave takings that Troilus has with um with Pandarus. Um textually it looks like somebody accidentally put the same scene in twice or the same lines in a couple of times, which I think is where uh Dr. Stern found the the pretense, maybe that's maybe not the right word. Pretext. <laughs> pretext. Um but uh confirmation that it is possible that that final um, speech was not necessarily there, um, or originally, right? Well, uh, and and if we haven't, if, if, if we don't understand uh, by that point that um, Pandarus is creepy and diseased, we don't need it in the final speech because ultimately that's not what 
the play is about except metaphorically yes it's all we're all creepy and diseased but but no that sounds like a very very smart cut yeah do you feel like (laughs) so you you've directed this incredibly successful production down in atlanta do you feel now like after having successfully directed this production, you are now ready to really direct a production of Troilus and Cressida. It, <laughs> does it feel like practice for the next time? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I think I always feel like that the first time I'm like, yes, I figured it out. That thing that I was trying to figure out, I figured it out. Yeah. I will say that I was often that feeling comes from, I figured it out, but I wasn't able to communicate it clearly to the actors yet. And so I didn't, it wasn't quite on stage yet. And I feel like to a great extent, it was actually on stage this time. I was very proud of that production. Um, So I don't feel like I immediately want to jump back in and redo it and, and make all of my thoughts come out um, in a production. I would a hundred percent revisit it in a year or two or three or five, right. To, Mm -hmm. To go, okay, I think maybe, I've let this settle a little bit more and maybe it's, it's stewed in my brain more now. And I might have further to push the ideas. Um, But it wasn't one of those instant. Okay. Now, now I can do it, which I recognize happens frequently. So. Well, congratulations because I I mean, I've worked on the play now twice uh, and only feel like I'm beginning to begin to understand it in a way that would allow for a successful production. Yeah. I think a lot of it just comes from making sure that the actors trust their own take on it. I think a lot of times the actors sort of come in with this, oh, Trojan War thought that makes them try to take it really seriously. And I kept saying, do you think that's funny? If you think that's funny, the audience is going to think that's funny. So let's just play into that and make it funny. And that I think really helped that and sort of setting it up with the prologue, which is that sort of storytelling, let's establish what's happening, you know, what's happening here mm-hmm. because it does start smack in the middle of the Trojan War. There's yeah. no, there's no like um, initial. And here is, you know, let us set up the entirety of the, it's just that one little prologue. Um, so I think that setting up in that prologue that this is funny and you as an audience are allowed to laugh at this and expected to laugh at this because I think they come in with the same prejudice about what the play is supposed to be. Oh, it's serious and it's, it's historical and it's, you know, um, formal and things like that, that I think that once we set that up, we set ourselves up for success. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, except for one more thing, which I'll share with you in about 60 seconds, so stick around. Send us your Shakespeare satires via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com or throw a comment to us over on the socials or on our own actual website, reducedshakespeare.com, or visit my website, theshakespeareans.com. Thanks, as always, to Trojan hero Matthew Croak, Web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Paul Euler. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to author, publisher, fight director, and all round Shakespearean David Blixt. And as always, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 898 2694ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. 
Gemma, thank you for um, explaining Troilus and Cressida to me. And, and it really should go on your business cards. You know, Gemma Levy, putting the comedy back into Shakespeare, whether it belongs there or not. <laughs> yes, we still have to work on that clown production of Titus Andronicus. Yes, we do. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of satires. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.